This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Jeffrey D. Long, who's back on the show. He's a professor of religion and Asian studies at Elizabethtown College in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, where he has taught since receiving his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago Divinity School in the year 2000. Uh, His latest book, uh, Perspectives on Reincarnation, Hindu, Christian, and Scientific. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Jeffrey, welcome back. Um, Anybody interested in the larger picture of uh, your spiritual history and your work can listen to our first interview with you, which was a couple of years ago. Today, we want to focus on your new book, Perspectives on Reincarnation. Uh, Tell us what got you interested in that subject and what the uh, origins of the book were. Okay, well, the subject has fascinated me for a long time, and some of that goes back to my autobiography, which, uh, as you said, uh, we discussed the last time I was on. Uh, But uh, I suffered uh, some losses early in life. My father passed away when I was quite young. And this led me to a fascination with the afterlife. And the idea of reincarnation in particular always uh, was particularly appealing to me. It it, it seemed to uh, balance out certain aspects of uh, uh, traditional afterlife beliefs of of the kind that I had grown up with in in the Christian tradition. Uh, It seemed to me that uh, you know, getting to heaven was sort of like a free pass if you already had some uh, issues, some flaws in your character that needed to be worked out. On the other hand, eternal damnation, that never made sense to me either. It seems like we suffer in order to learn things, not just out of some sadistic uh, kind of punishment. Uh, with reincarnation, you get both, right? You have basically infinite second chances to uh, uh, improve yourself and to evolve uh, on a soul level. And another thing that was uh, more recently, I think, that got me interested in in writing about this uh, at this particular time was uh, something that actually appeared on NBC Nightly News a couple years ago and uh, made me aware of the work of Jim Tucker at the University of Virginia with children who have these very striking, uh, what appear to be at least, memories of past lives. And uh, he's continuing the very famous work of Ian Stevenson, his predecessor, uh, but he's... uh, tightened up his methodology quite a bit. He's, he's uh, I think, a bit more rigorous than Professor Stevenson was. And so uh, cases where children might have been led to the conclusion of past lives have been ruled out. Uh, the really remarkable case that made the news was a little boy called Ryan Monroe in Oklahoma. Uh, his parents were Baptists. They didn't believe in reincarnation. They didn't have any particular connection with any religious tradition that teaches reincarnation. And yet their son uh, had these very vivid memories in his mind of the life of actually what turned out to be a fairly obscure uh, uh, Hollywood agent uh, from back in the 30s and 40s. And this little boy had remarkable detail about this man's life without having had access to any of the information through any conventional means, through the Internet, through books. Uh, The man that he believed he was the reincarnation of was not a very famous person. Uh, So uh, it was really a very strong case. And uh, so there was a a panel at the uh, American Academy of Religion and the Society for Hindu-Christian Studies on reincarnation. And there was sort of a debate among scholars 
between those taking more of a traditional Christian view and more of a traditional Hindu view. Uh, I lean toward the Hindu perspective. Uh, I was not a member of that panel, but I attended it, and it was standing room only. It was clear there was intense interest in this topic, even though it's not something academics really write about all that much, uh, but there was intense interest. And so uh, I developed a panel the following year for Donham, which also meets at the American Academy of Religion, to, as a follow-up to the previous year's panel. And we continued the conversation. And one of the attendees of that meeting uh, works for a journal called Religions. Uh, it's an online journal. And he was so impressed with the conversation, he said, uh, I would like uh, to have a special issue dedicated to this topic. And he told me that, uh, you know, if I were the editor of this special issue, uh, he said, if we get enough articles, if we have at least uh, 10 articles, uh, we could actually uh, print it as a hard copy and it would be, in effect, an edited volume. So uh, I got together, I managed to get together 14 uh, scholars who were interested in this and a really nice collection of articles. And uh, it, it came into print uh, earlier this year. And uh, so it's, it's available as a free uh, PDF for download uh, or a hard copy can be purchased through the religion's uh, website. Well, I have to say, uh, first of all, you mentioned Donham, so the listeners should know that stands for uh, the Dharma Academy of North America. I, they get that right? That's, that's and that's and, and uh, an organization of scholars studying those traditions. And I should say that anybody who claims to have been a, a Hollywood agent is not lying. Uh, <laughs> Jeffrey, I wanted to ask you, I mean, it, when it comes to afterlife, it seems what I, I, I've observed over the years, and including uh, observing myself, <clears throat> people hear different uh, stories about what happens in the afterlife, and then usually they pick the one that appeals to them most, and that's what they believe in or uh, hope for. Right. Uh, and and uh, the difficult thing is, uh, even with these reports of life after life, some of them have been debunked, and there's some of them they talk about the brain still being active. In regard to this uh, young man... I mean, you could make a convincing case there, but that is very anecdotal. So uh, when it's all said and done, uh, doesn't it really just come down to belief? Uh, you know, uh, well, this makes sense. Uh, you haven't worked it out this life. Let's work it out the next life. And I also wonder about uh, uh, the obliteration of one uh, uh, personality or, and set of memories and the creation of a new one that uh, to me seems no different than complete obliteration, which may be what happens. But uh, so th those are the thoughts I hear. Uh, uh, it makes for interesting discussion, but I'm not sure you could ever come to any real conclusions. I think that uh, most of the time the case, uh, what you've described, uh, certainly we all have a lot of wishful thinking one way or the other about how we would like the afterlife to, to come out. I think uh, the reason the Ryan Monroe case is so interesting is that I think this is a little more than anecdotal. He gives specific information which there is no, uh, there was no way that he could have had that information, uh, and it is so extensive uh, that uh, it caused Jim Tucker, at least, to say this is a real phenomenon and uh, science needs to investigate it. Uh, it's certainly a field that's in its infancy, and I think we would probably need more Ryan Monroe's if this was to be persuasive to a large number right. of people. If, if, but, I could uh, just, if I could just follow up, though, and that is that even if that is the case, and it does sound very convincing, and uh, I'm not questioning the authenticity of it, although that would be something that have to be, have to be researched, 
But still, if that was an authentic experience, it's still not proof of reincarnation. Uh, it, it's proof that, uh, or it, it's indicating that some, some young man somehow in this life has a memory of somebody uh, who existed at another time. And, and, uh, but I mean, to take that and say, all right, this proves that uh, when you die, this is what happens. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, I think you need much more uh, to, to make a convincing argument. Well, uh, and I agree with you in that sense, because uh, certainly uh, this could be, an, uh, uh, the case could be made, uh, the argument could be made that this boy had some kind of telepathic contact with this man, or this man, for some right. reason, had some kind of telepathic contact with this boy. But that by itself is revolutionary because it means that there is this sort of non-local influence between one mind and another mm -hmm. uh, that cannot be accounted through a material medium. So at the very least, it greatly calls into question uh, the dominant materialist paradigm in the scientific world. This is the direction that uh, uh, Tucker takes it. And uh, in fact, what he argues, interestingly, is that uh, within science itself, uh, a lot of good reasons have come up to question uh, that dominant paradigm, because with quantum uh, theory, quantum mechanics, uh, non-local influences are something that is, have come to be widely accepted now by, by physics. And there could be a physics of this that uh, uh, has yet to be teased out. Um, so certainly it's, it's, a, it's, it's very uh, important information, and whether we interpret it as about reincarnation or whether it's just a broader questioning of how the mind works, uh, that's, of course, you know, I, I agree with you. I would say the more modest claim would be not that it proves reincarnation, but it's highly consistent with models of reincarnation that you find in traditions mm -hmm. like Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. Right. Well, it seems to me that, uh, as you said, the research is in its infancy, but the very fact that there is research to the extent that it can be uh, researched within the... Um, the parameters of scientific inquiry, that in itself is interesting, that anybody's taking it seriously enough to try to design uh, rigorous studies. And I assume that there's there are other an uh, anecdotal instances. I remember hearing about many of them involving oh, yeah. children with memories like that. But it, it can't. The research can't just be dependent on you know those kind of unusual. Uh, children who remember something about a past life. Is there other research going on? Well, I, that, that I know of, I, there's really not a lot that's considered reliable. Hypnotherapy, of course, is one that people have looked into, but that's notoriously unreliable in terms of leading questions and, yeah. uh, you know, the bias of the researcher uh, contaminating the results. So one of the things about this type of research is that, I mean, it, it really is in one sense dependent on these children being discovered, um, and so it's, it's, these are hardly laboratory conditions, right? It's not right, reproducible, right. Uh, and that's one of the things that makes it, uh, you know, again, I think a matter of faith for many people. Uh, one thing interesting, though, again, to point out about Tucker is he's not viewed as a crackpot. Uh, his work is taken seriously, uh, and interestingly, the uh, University of Virginia is actually using his work and its promotional materials when they're looking for donations. Uh, so uh, they seem quite yeah. proud of it. They're not. Right. Uh, they're not trying to hide it uh, or anything. Right. Um, and because Tucker's very modest in the claims that he makes. I mean, he. Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, saying the the whole um, dominant paradigm needs to be overturned. I, you could say that's not a modest claim. But what I mean is, he's very careful about uh, the 
conclusions that he comes to. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own piece in, in uh, this reincarnation volume uh, just looks at the scientific dimension as one aspect of a larger argument. My arguments for rebirth are mainly theological in nature, and uh, they they do amount to you know what what makes sense to you as an individual and what uh, is coherent with your life experience. Uh, but I, I think the scientific aspect is is probably the most interesting piece in terms of uh, the wider public, you know, taking notice of this uh, topic. Right, right. I, I wanted to also mention uh, that uh, I have many friends, and maybe I don't have your uh, typical group of friends, but uh, that are very convinced uh, by their own experience that uh, the reincarnation exists because they have memories of certain things. So, you know, there's no, right. that's not scientific evidence, that, but uh, these are very right. intelligent people that are absolutely convinced of that. Uh, one question I did have, uh, because you mentioned Hindu, Christian, and scientific, uh, in Christianity, or at least in Catholicism, uh, they don't accept uh, reincarnation. Somebody told me, and I haven't researched this myself, that that came long after the death of Christ, that, that conclusion. But I'm wondering if within Christianity there are theologians, uh, whether Catholic or, or, or uh, Protestant, that uh, strongly endorse or are very open to the idea of reincarnation. Uh, I wouldn't say there are many who strongly endorse it, um, and in fact, one of the pieces in my uh, volume is, a, is sharply critical of the idea of reincarnation, basically argues for why Christians should not believe in reincarnation. Uh, but there are theologians that I know of who are, I would say, open to the idea, but they're very careful about what they say, because this is a topic uh, where you know the, the Church has sort of you know had a very decided belief about this for the last 1,500 years or so. Uh, as you say, uh, that wasn't the case early in the, the history of the Church. The first five centuries, there were quite a few Christians who believed in some version of rebirth, uh, and the idea was condemned, I think, around the 5th century at the uh, Fourth Council of Constantinople, and that's when it really uh, became officially you know, banned as a, as a view. Uh, in terms of people's individual experiences and, and beliefs about rebirth, uh, I, I make a distinction between what I call empirical and experiential um, proof. Uh, and I think, yes, like if you have a memory that is very compelling to you uh, and uh, you know you find that that's verified through other sources, you know, that, that I would call that an experiential proof, but it wouldn't necessarily be persuasive to an outside observer, and it's not repeatable. So... I would say there's there's experiential proof and there's empirical proof. And uh, I think very often uh, our society tends to value empirical proof, and of course for good reasons, but I think for uh, for the individual, and I'm, I'm kind of in line with William James here, uh, if it's persuasive to you, if it helps you lead a better life, and if it's not flagrantly in conflict with what we know from science, then it's quite legitimate, I think, for people to believe um, as they wish on topics like this. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, in the Dharma traditions, I mean, people people think of obviously Hinduism and Buddhism having a belief in reincarnation. The other Dharmic traditions also do, but I think it, it's surprising to many people the variety of uh, of perspectives within an acceptance of reincarnation. In other words, the details are uh, not always uh, uniformly uh, accepted, even within any of the traditions. Can you speak to the you know, variety of how uh, reincarnation is understood in what we oh, think absolutely. of as the Eastern traditions? Absolutely. So, 
for example, in uh, the Advaita Vedanta tradition, which is where I practice, uh, the the whole concept of time, space, and causation is not actually reflective of the true nature of reality. So all of time and space is uh, what we call maya. It's not, uh, it's an appearance. It's not really the true nature of existence as we understand it. And so our bodies, time, space, the material world, all of this is a projection of consciousness from that point of view. So rebirth then uh, means uh, it's not that you are, you know, that there's a soul that's sort of inside of a body and then it leaves the body and goes somewhere else. Uh, we are infinite consciousness, according to this teaching, and we identify with the body. So rather than reincarnation, as it's often called in the Western world, uh, uh, re-identification would probably be a better uh, way to see it from an Advaita Vedanta perspective. Jainism, at the other end of the spectrum, has an almost material understanding of the soul. The soul itself has... Uh, spatial extent, it exists in a particular place in the universe, and karma, uh, the, the fuel, the engine of, of uh, rebirth, uh, is a material substance, according to Jainism, which actually adheres to the soul, and that the soul is trying to purge itself from uh, through the process of self-purification. So that's a very different understanding of, of how the whole process works. And then Buddhism, yet again, uh, is very insistent on the idea that what we call a soul is really not a discrete entity. It's a, it's a flow, it's a process, it's a series of what are really distinct events. And so in a certain sense, you could say, uh, yes, there's rebirth because certain karmic impressions pass on from one body to another. But at the same time, you could, you could look at it another way in Buddhism and say, I'm not even the same person from moment to moment in this life, mm. not to speak up, you know, multiple lives. So, yeah, I mean, that gives you just some feel for the variety that's there in the Dharma tradition. It's really Dennis, quite, uh, go ahead. Quite a lot. Can I follow up? Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey, um, to follow up on that, um, you mentioned the perspective of Advaita Vedanta. Um, there, and within what we think of as Hinduism, there would be other uh, interpretations yeah. or other descriptions. But I'm, I'm wondering about the uh, the classic sort of uh, metaphor in the Bhagavad Gita of you know the 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 uh, individual shedding the garment of the body and then taking on a, a new garment. Uh, that speaks to some kind of individual soul, uh, jiva, or as I understand yes. it. So how do you, how do you uh, react to well, that? I think the, what the, the, the Gita really describes, I think, the place where the Dharma traditions converge. Uh, the concept that I am not this body, this body is the vehicle for the experiencing of a more fundamental entity that is me, and uh, that we need not ultimately fear death because it's a transition from one state to another, uh, not complete obliteration. Uh, that was mentioned earlier. Um, we retain the impressions of the previous existences, though not always with great clarity, uh, and our, our essential character uh, continues and, and persists on and continues its learning process. I think that the, all the traditions would agree on that, and then it's when we get to the form more fundamental level of metaphysics that then you see the divergences. Is it the material substance? Is it not? Um, or is there something even more fundamental than the soul, like the Paramatman, that, that, that is our true entity? 
Now, these are uh, the sorts of questions where they diverge, but uh, I like to quote the Gita a lot uh, on this topic because I think it's really where, uh, I, I don't think in this portion you just cited, which is from the second chapter of the Gita, I don't think there's anything there that uh, any of the Dharma traditions would particularly object to. Mm -hmm. right. well, let, sure. let me, uh, uh, you mentioned obliteration, and it is an obliteration because those impressions uh, carry forward to the next life, even though without great clarity. Uh, in Hinduism, for instance, uh, uh, what is the end goal? Is it that uh, you, re re you, know, you reach an enlightenment and, and at that point uh, uh, all impressions from all past lives are there, so you have there's a continuity, a knowledge of everything. And then what is the current situation? Uh, do you exist as a personality or are you, are you just uh, uh, consciousness? And again, uh, non-localized, non-specific. Uh, and and right. again, I would, I would consider that obliteration. Mm. Well, like Phil says, uh, the, uh, there are different forms of Hinduism. So uh, the more uh, theistic devotional traditions like Vaishnavism, uh, which are uh, represented by uh, several articles in this volume, uh, it is more of a personal continuity. It's, it's very similar to a Christian vision where after liberation, one is in Vaikuntha, one is in the heavenly realm with Krishna, with the per personi personified uh, supreme being and uh, remains there for all eternity uh, in a joyful and blissful state. Uh, in Advaita Vedanta and in Buddhism, uh, I could see why you would call it an obliteration, but it's more of a realization that what you thought you were was never really you to begin with. So it would be as if uh, you had a dream that you were another person and then you woke up. Uh, was that other person obliterated? Well, they never were really there in the first place. Yeah, yes, uh, but there so, still has to be there still has to be an observer to have that realization. Right. That's the part that that I right. find confusing. I guess uh, I don't know what branch of Hinduism, but where it says you know you merge with the absolute and you become unbounded, non-specific. And, and again, I, I would use the word obliteration. Well, I mean, you can use that word if you like, but uh, that's not really how the tradition thinks of it. Uh, well, that's it's, what I'm trying uh, to understand. Realization. Uh, you, yeah. were the, you were the absolute from the beginning. So nothing, nothing has come or gone. But, but, is, uh, there, but, but is, is there, is, is the belief that, and, and that I, I'm not arguing with, I'm playing the devil's advocate, and this is a conversation I've been having with folks for years, but at that point right. where you are what you always were, which is this unbounded, uh, ocean of consciousness, uh, for lack of a better right. term, uh, is there an experiencer, or is it just, uh, you know, pure experience without a, a, an object of experience? Uh, I guess that, uh, to me, seems, uh, I'm not sure how that's different than, than uh, uh, just going unconscious. Well, it is different, I think, in the sense that there is, there is awareness, but we have a hard time, I think, conceiving of an undifferentiated awareness because awareness as we know it is always differentiated, except perhaps in very deep states of meditation, uh, where you know there's a clear subject and a clear object and the two are distinct. And this is how we experience most of the time. So I would say it's experience of a completely different order. Um, but I don't think it's simply being unconscious. Otherwise, I, I don't think the sages would have gone to all the effort they did to achieve this. I mean, very easily. Well, well I mean, how do we know they achieved that? I mean, you, you, I, mean that, I don't think that's a, a reasonable argument for saying it exists. Yeah. Right, right, right. You have to have, I mean, it has to be experienced to be really... Uh, this is why I know, think, and I'll, I'll agree with this, is that, that it all, all comes down to a belief. Uh, 
Yeah, go ahead, Phil. Um, <laughs> if consciousness is by its nature conscious, then when one uh, awakens to that, and then one is conscious. The question I have, it's related, I would just express it a different way, is does individuality remain? And I know there are uh, branches of Hinduism in which there is an element of, re of individuality oh, yeah. after liberation, and uh, others where, no, you just merge with the absolute right. as you always have been. Right, right, exactly. And yeah, so... Both, both ways of thinking are, are, are co-present in the Hindu tradition, yeah. Yeah, and, and so that's important for people to understand because I, I know it came as a revelation to me that there were branches within the tradition where individuality is, in fact, retained. So oh, yeah. that's, that's phenomenal. That's fascinating. Uh, to, to switch gears just a moment, uh, there are also different ways of understanding what actually takes place between incarnations. And right. um, I'm curious, uh, I, we can't go into all the details of all the different perspectives on that, but what would right. be your perspective from the Advaita uh, uh, tradition and maybe mention another? Right. So, well, in the Advaita tradition, uh, the Advaita tradition, of course, is tapping into the broader Vedic, what we might call Hindu textual world. Uh, where if you go back to the Upanishads, there's um, been this very ancient understanding that between births in uh, in worlds like ours, uh, what are often called a karma bhumi, place where we are um, engaged in action and experiencing the fruits of action, there's also these in in between spaces that are called the bhoga bhumi, uh, enjoyment realm, where you are basically experiencing and processing. Uh, all of the knowledge uh, that you gained while you were in the karma bhumi. Uh, it's like a, a rest phase, you could say. And uh, it's not always a pleasant one, too. Uh, if you've, uh, Some of the villains or you know, characters in the Hindu literature end up in some hellish realms as well. Uh, but these are temporary. It's, it's uh, not like the eternal life or eternal damnation that you see in, in Western religion. These are abodes where the soul resides between lifetimes in realms like like the earthly realm um in the jain tradition the belief is that one is instantaneously uh reincarnated that, that the moment immediately following death in one lifetime uh there proceeds the conception of the next lifetime and the soul instantaneously transfers to a new location uh so you don't have this idea of in between realms so much though there are celestial realms and hellish realms in the jain universe also where one can be reborn uh, but there is that idea that uh, there is this sort of in-between. And, of course, the really famous one is the Bardo state of Tibetan Buddhism with the, mm. you know, uh, with the, the sort of uh, cosmic trip uh, where you can uh, uh, conceivably escape from the cycle if you know how to navigate it skillfully, but most people don't, and uh, mm. we get reborn. Uh, Jeffrey, <laughs> uh, uh, great conversation. Uh, I'm really enjoying it, and I'm, uh, I, I, this is an area I obviously would like to... Uh, research more the book uh perspectives on reincarnation hindu christian and scientific any final points and uh fill any final questions i, I have one question for jeffrey if you can answer briefly it's probably not easy to be brief on this but i'm curious how your um conviction about reincarnation 
affects your own life. Oh, I think it affects it dramatically because uh, I, in anyone I meet, I might have met before. <laughs> and uh, there's a, a, one, a wonderful saying attributed to the Buddha that we should uh, honor every being that we meet because at one point in this vast cosmic process, uh, they were our father or mother. <laughs> and so uh, I, I think it, it leads to you, you to you know really want to show respect to others because you 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 don't know who you're meeting and uh, um, it, it also uh, I think it creates a wider context for uh, decision making. You know I, I think about uh, sort of long term ramifications meaning over multiple lifetimes of, of choices I make and. I'm aware that if I'm ever unkind to anyone, uh, that same experience might come back to me at some point in the future. And so, uh, you know, I, for me, it reinforces, I would call right ethical behavior. Uh, and, the, and what, and what about, what about your perspective on death and loss? Oh, that, that's helped tremendously. And my, my biggest recent loss was of my grandmother, uh, just about three years ago. And uh, it, it really helped me get through that. And it was a tremendous loss. And she had asked me to do her funeral eulogy for her, which was really difficult to get through. But uh, I did it, and I felt good doing it. It was, it was something I had promised I would do for her. Um, but it really, yes, I mean, that sense of, that there is not this finality, that there is not the, you know, that the essence of the person, that what you loved in that person still exists, is still out there somewhere, and you may even meet again. And uh, I find that to be de deeply comforting, and it helps me accept uh, loss and and cope with it. Great. Very good. Thank you so much. Oh. And, uh, all the information about the book and Jeffrey's research will be posted up on the blog. Um, thank you so much, Phil. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks for returning. And uh, wish we had more time. And we'll, maybe we'll have to. I'm tempted to say come back in another life. Or, or we can, we, <laughs> another, we can, do, pod, uh, do podcasts reincarnate? I'm not sure. We can, re well, we can rebirth the uh, Jeffrey on the podcast. He can come back again. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.